Hello and welcome to another episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Patrice Collins, a fourth-year medical student at the Medical College of Georgia. And my name is Elise Liu, also a fourth-year medical student at MCG. On today's episode, we will be discussing pre-exposure prophylaxis, also known as PrEP, for HIV prevention, specifically in the adolescent population. To help with our discussion, we are joined by Dr. Cheryl Newman, who is a professor of medicine and infectious diseases at the Medical College of Georgia. She completed her medical school training here at MCG and completed her residency and fellowship at Johns Hopkins University. She now practices primarily in the outpatient setting. Dr. Newman has spent most of her career caring for those with HIV and is an investigator of multiple industry-sponsored clinical trials of antiretrovirals. Welcome, Dr. Newman. Thanks for having me today, Patrice and Elise. So, Dr. Newman, HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis is not something I hear much about in pediatrics. Why is this an important topic for the pediatrician? Unfortunately, adolescents are commonly overlooked group when it comes to HIV prevention and PrEP usage. So if we look at the statistics for incidence of HIV in the U.S., adolescents who range from the ages of 10 to 24 years represent a portion of the fastest-growing demographic for developing sexually transmitted infections, or STIs for short. Oh, wow. That's pretty significant. Yes. And in 2017, studies found that STIs, such as chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis, have become some of the highest rates in young adults ages 15 to 24 years. In addition, 20% of new HIV diagnoses occurred in people aged 13 to 24 years old. Over half of this population identified as black and approximately one quarter identified as Hispanic or Latino. With such a high percent of adolescents at risk, it definitely seems that pre-exposure prophylaxis should be something that pediatricians should have knowledge about. Dr. Newman, could you clarify to the listeners what we mean by pre-exposure prophylaxis? Sure. We will discuss pre-exposure prophylaxis more in detail later, but it simply is medicine that can be prescribed for people at risk for HIV that helps to prevent them from getting HIV from sex or injection drug use. When taken as prescribed, PrEP is highly effective for preventing HIV. That sounds like such a great resource when we consider that adolescents are at risk for HIV. Agree. Did you know that preliminary data from the CDC showed that in 2020, approximately 240,000 individuals ages 16 to 24 years old were eligible for PrEP, but only 16% of this population was actually prescribed the medication? So why is this number so low? That's a great question. There's probably three main reasons. One, adolescents are unaware of its availability. Two, providers are unaware of how to use PrEP. And finally, there still remains stigma and concerns about discussing high-risk behaviors that are associated with an increased likelihood of HIV acquisition. But the benefit of PrEP goes beyond just helping to prevent HIV. Initiating PrEP for at-risk individuals prevents the long-term medical problems associated with HIV. These include HIV medication-related comorbidities, increased risk of cardiovascular, renal, and metabolic diseases, and AIDS-defining illness if the infection goes untreated. That really highlights how important this topic is for pediatricians to consider when caring for their adolescent patients. Agreed. So, let's dive into a clinical case to keep our discussion going. Troy is a 15-year-old cisgendered black male who presents to your pediatric clinic with his parents to establish care. As you conduct your patient interview and establish rapport with Choi, you ask his parents to step out of the room for the rest of the interview. 
You do this routinely with all your adolescent patients in order to maintain a patient confidentiality and develop trust between patient and provider. Once Troy's parents step out of the room, you begin to conduct your risky behavior screening and sexual health portion of the history. Troy reveals that he is attracted to men and self-identifies as gay. He states that his parents are supportive of his sexual orientation. However, they don't know that he has begun to engage in receptive anal intercourse with other males. He states that he has participated in sexual activities with five male partners over the past two years and has used condoms inconsistently. However, he has concerns because his friend was recently diagnosed with HIV and he is now worried about his own risk. Dr. Newman, how would you begin your discussion about sexual health awareness and options for HIV testing and prevention with Choi? Addressing all aspects of patient health is an important part of the adolescent visit, and sexual health is a component of that health history. What age is appropriate to begin discussing sexual health? Great question. We begin to consider sexual health at age 11. Talking about sexual health and safety when an adolescent isn't easy, how do you approach this sensitive topic? I agree that it can be an uncomfortable conversation to bring up. Adolescence is a challenging time when many emotional and physical changes take place. Physicians can play a very important role during this time, but that means talking about sensitive issues with adolescents. A great screening tool to assess risk factors is HEADS, the acronym spelled H-E-A-D-S-S-S, which is a framework to start the discussion. Elise, could you explain to the listeners what HEADS interviews entail? Sure. HEADS is an acronym used to help screen risk factors in adolescents. H is for home, E is for education or employment, A is for activities, D is for drugs, and S stands for sexuality, suicide, and safety. That's right. It's a systematic approach to the adolescent interview, progressing from the least threatening topics to the more personal and sensitive subjects. The five P's is another assessment tool you can use to gather a sexual history. Patrice, what are the five P's? As you said, the five P's is a tool that includes the key components of the sexual history. The P's include partners, pregnancy prevention, sexual practices, protection from STIs, and history of STIs. Great job. It's really important to remember to use language that is non-assuming and non-judgmental when providing guidance for our adolescent patients. There should be open discussion with the patient about opposite or same-sex attraction, sexual and gender identity, and sexual behaviors. Are there established guidelines to help providers navigate the sensitive discussion? Yes. The American Academy of Pediatrics has established guidelines and recommendations that address sexual health assessments. This includes the Bright Futures Adolescent Tool, which is a widely used and helpful resource for providers to promote sexual and reproductive health. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force and CDC actually recommend that universal and routine HIV screening be offered to all patients 15 years and older at least once. However, in 2018, an estimated 45% of adolescents and young adults living with HIV were undiagnosed. Dr. Newman, What are common barriers to testing that you have encountered in your practice? Well, common patient barriers to testing include worries of confidentiality and fear of parent notification of results, access to testing, and the blood draws themselves. Other barriers are more provider-specific. Many providers may have lack of time during a busy practice to provide a thorough assessment of the risk factors. There may be also personal discomfort in asking these types of sensitive questions. And especially prevalent is insufficient training of how to talk to adolescents about STIs and HIV. Patients may also be too embarrassed and provide inaccurate responses. 
So it makes sense that patient may be hesitant to discuss such a private topic, especially if they engage in risky behaviors. What advice do you have for clinical providers? Providers can increase patient comfort and encourage disclosure of high-risk activities by establishing confidentiality and privacy. Some ways you can do this include using screening questionnaires and asking parents to step out of the room for a portion of the history taking and increasing time on these discussions. Bright Futures encourages confidentiality policies to be discussed at the 11 to 14-year-old patient visit. This involves conversation of what can be kept confidential between provider and patient. We will discuss a little more about some of the laws regarding minor consent and parental notification of STI services a little bit later. So I guess starting at the 11-year-old visit helps patients and parents begin getting used to the routine practice of the family members stepping out of the room during routine health visits. Good point. We mentioned earlier how risky behaviors might be a reason adolescents are hesitant to discuss their sexual health. So what is considered a risky behavior? Adolescent age is itself a risk factor for exposure to STIs and HIV. Why? Simply because it's a time of biological and developmental transition, and this is normally accompanied by risk-taking and experimentation. High-risk activity can include alcohol and drug use, IV drug use, sex work or transactional sex, or lack of condom use. Sexual minorities have a higher risk of HIV exposure, especially young transgender females and men who have sex with men. Those having receptive anal intercourse are also at the highest risk. So how often should individuals be tested for HIV? HIV screening is recommended at least once for those 15 years of age and older, but those who are sexually active should be tested annually. Individuals with high-risk activity should probably be tested every three to six months. For HIV screening, there are rapid tests that can be done with finger stick blood samples or oral swabs. How accurate are these tests? The rapid tests that you are referring to are used to detect HIV antibodies and actually have more than 99% sensitivity and specificity for patients with chronic infection. However, tests using oral fluids like saliva have significantly lower sensitivities compared to the finger stick tests. Up to 8% of HIV-infected people can have a false negative result when using the home oral testing kits. There are also fourth-generation tests that detect both antibody and HIV antigen. The sensitivity and specificity for these combination tests are almost 100%, but only for those with chronic infection. So these are more reliable than antibody-only tests for detecting acute infection, right? Yes, and these tests can also provide rapid results. However, laboratory testing based on whole blood is more sensitive for diagnosing acute infection. For patients with a positive test result, a confirmatory test is done with an HIV-1 and HIV-2 differentiation assay. Nucleic acid testing is also an alternative confirmatory test that detects viral load and is utilized for patients with suspected acute infection. That's really helpful to know. So back to our patient case. Troy is an adolescent boy with high-risk sexual behavior. The U.S. Public Health Service and USPSTF recommends HIV PrEP to be offered to those individuals with significantly increased risk of HIV infection. How do we incorporate PrEP into our discussion? Well, in this case, Troy came to his pediatrician asking about HIV prevention. But typically, clinical providers must initiate that discussion about testing and potential prophylaxis once an adolescent with high-risk behavior is identified. 
Similarly to adults, PrEP can be an effective tool to dramatically decrease the risk of HIV acquisition in at-risk youth. How exactly does PrEP work? What does PrEP look like for individuals who decide to use it? That's a great question, Patrice, but it might be helpful to first review how pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV prevention has evolved over time. In the first iteration of pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV prevention, a PrEP regimen involved taking a once-daily oral antiviral pill. The first FDA-approved medication for PrEP was Truvada in 2012. Truvada is a combination of emtricitabine and tenofovir disaproxyl fumarate. At least, do you remember what type of medications emtricitabine and tenofovir are? They are both nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, or NRTIs. Well, Patrice, how do NRTI medications work? I'm glad you asked, Dr. Newman. HIV uses reverse transcriptase to convert its RNA into DNA, also known as reverse transcription. NRTIs work by blocking reverse transcriptase and reverse transcription, which then prevents HIV from replicating. Great job, ladies. Truvada is a single pill taken once daily. It decreases the risk of HIV infection through sexual activity by greater than 90%. That's amazing. Yes, and in 2019, a second oral medication, also taken once daily, called Descovi, was FDA-approved for PrEP. It is composed of emtricitabine and a different formulation of tenofovir, tenofovir alafinamide, and has a slightly better side effect profile. But the side effects for both medications are typically minimal. So are these the only options for pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV prevention? There have been clinical studies exploring the effectiveness of other medication regimens. However, these regimens have not yet been approved in adolescents or cisgender women who are women assigned as female at birth. But recently, the first injectable medication for PrEP was FDA-approved. It's called Apritude. Apritude is composed of extended-release cabotegravir, which is an integrase strand transfer inhibitor. It's given every two months in the buttocks. It sounds like there's a good amount of active research in the field of HIV prevention, but how well is PrEP studied in the adolescent population? There have been a few trials specifically examining the effectiveness of PrEP usage in adolescents. Truvada was initially approved for adults who were 18 or older, and then the ATN-113 and the PLUS PILLS trials demonstrated that once daily use of Truvada for PrEP was safe and effective in adolescents. The FDA guidelines were revised in 2018, allowing people aged 12 and older with high risk for HIV infection to take Truvada if they weighed more than 35 kilograms. What about apritude or cabotegravir? For cabotegravir, the initial study examined its effectiveness versus generic Truvada in cisgender men and transgender women. A parallel study looked at its effectiveness versus Truvada in young cisgender women. Both of these studies were halted early when the interim analysis found that cabotegravir worked better than the once-daily oral medication. Because these studies did not include cisgender females younger than age 18, a bridging study is now underway to evaluate the use of an injectable in this population. Initial studies for Descovi did not include cisgender females or adolescents, but 2019 FDA approval was for use in adolescents and adults greater than 12 years of age who weigh more than 35 kilograms. This approval, though, does not extend to individuals at risk for HIV infection through receptive vaginal intercourse, regardless of age. 
That's great information to know. So if I have an adolescent patient that meets criteria for starting PrEP, are there any special tests that need to be done prior to starting medication? If the patient is interested in starting PrEP on the same day as the visit, then the only test needed is a negative rapid HIV test. Otherwise, for oral daily PrEP, patients should get a rapid HIV test, hepatitis panel, creatinine clearance for measurement of kidney function, testing for other STIs as necessary, and a pregnancy test for females with reproductive capability. The hepatitis panel and renal panel have to be done for those who start same-day PrEP as well, but the results are not needed to start the PrEP on that day. Once those results come back, continued usage of PrEP can be reevaluated. What if a patient presents with concerns of recent risk of HIV exposure that might not be detected on a rapid test? That's a great question, Elise. A negative HIV test result is required before starting PrEP. Since PrEP medications alone are insufficient treatment for HIV and resistance can develop with inadequate treatment. Acute retroviral syndrome, also called acute human immunodeficiency syndrome, is the first stage of an HIV infection. So Patrice, what kind of symptoms would you expect in this stage? Well, in this stage, symptoms are nonspecific. Acute retroviral syndrome symptoms are similar to the flu, such as headache, nausea, diarrhea, weight loss, oral ulcers, sore throat, fatigue, and body aches. And these symptoms can actually disappear on their own within a week, so it may be mistaken for another common viral infection. However, during this period, the individual is very infectious. Great job. If a person has signs of acute retroviral syndrome, HIV RNA viral load should be used to test since rapid testing can be negative in the setting of recent infection. What if the patient has an active STI? If a patient presents with an STI on the same day they want to start PrEP, a fourth-generation HIV antibody screening test is recommended because the rapid test can miss early disease. Did you know that PrEP can also be used to treat hepatitis B infection as well? So knowing the patient's hepatitis status can guide usage of the medication. What other considerations should be made before starting PrEP? Truvada and Descovy can both affect kidney function, so patients should have an adequate creatinine clearance before beginning the medication. It should be greater than 60 cc's per minute for Truvada and greater than 30 cc's per minute for Descovy. What about pregnancy? Is it safe to use? PrEP has been used off-label for pregnant females at risk for HIV, However, not many studies have included pregnant women. So Dr. Newman, how often do patients need to be followed after initiating PrEP? Oral PrEP can only be prescribed for 90 days at a time, so I typically see these patients every three months. What other labs should be routinely followed? HIV and other STI testing are repeated every three months. Creatinine clearance should be done every 12 months, and hepatitis B screening is repeated based on an individual's risk of acquiring hepatitis. And don't forget about pregnancy testing. This should be repeated as necessary. If a patient is taking Descovy, you will also need to check a lipid panel and the patient's weight yearly, as this medication may have some metabolic side effects. For the new injectable PrEP, HIV testing is repeated at every injection visit, so every two months and the STIs are tested for every four months. Oh, wow. So it seems like individuals on PrEP should be followed very regularly. But isn't it tricky for adolescents who may want to start the medication but may not want their parents to know? What are the federal and state laws affecting the prescription of PrEP for adolescents? 
That's a great question. There is no overarching federal law mandate that addresses STI testing and treatment for minors. So each state has their own laws that providers must be familiar with. All 50 states allow adolescents to give informed consent for STI testing and treatment without parental notification. However, some do not include HIV under this umbrella of STI services. But isn't PrEP a bit different because it is prophylaxis, not treatment? How does it differ? Only a few states have explicit laws granting minors the right to consent for PrEP services, and most have not addressed whether or not it's covered under existing laws. Minors can still be legally allowed to consent to PrEP if treatment can be defined broadly to include prevention. What considerations do we need regarding consent and confidentiality for our adolescent patients? Even though minors can be allowed to consent to PrEP, this does not necessarily protect the patient's PrEP status as caregivers can be notified at the physician's discretion. What complicates the situation more is that billing documentation also creates a barrier to disclosure for those covered under the caregiver's insurance. Hmm. This seems to be such a gray area. I guess that providers must be aware of their state laws. State and local health departments are excellent resources for more information. But you are right, every state is a bit different. Here in Georgia, where I practice, HIV testing and treatment is covered under STIs and will remain confidential for minors. That's great to know. So circling back to our case, Troy, our 15-year-old patient, has been identified as having a higher risk of HIV exposure and would benefit from using PrEP if he is HIV negative. Because we are practicing in the state of Georgia, he is able to consent for HIV testing. You introduced Troy to PrEP as a prevention tool for HIV. He would like to spend time to think about PrEP while awaiting his test results. At Troy's next visit, he decides to start PrEP after receiving news that his HIV test was negative. He gets additional lab work that we mentioned earlier completed and is prescribed PrEP with follow-up in three months. Dr. Newman, when should a general practitioner consider referring a patient like this to a specialist or HIV clinic? Well, Elise, for patients who are currently HIV negative and are seeking preventive services, we actually encourage these conversations to occur at general practitioner offices and health departments. You bring up a good point, Dr. Newman. Maybe by making these conversations more mainstream, we can help remove some of the stigma associated with HIV and its prevention. And this helps both patients and providers become more comfortable speaking about this topic. If a patient is confirmed HIV positive, it would then be appropriate to refer them to an HIV clinic or an infectious disease specialist to start treatment and further management. Do these clinics provide testing and screening options? There are federally funded HIV clinics, but these clinics have resources allocated specifically to treating and following patients who are diagnosed as HIV positive. So these locations should not be used as centers for referral of HIV-negative individuals seeking preventive measures. So while these clinics are supportive of the prevention efforts, unfortunately, there's no specific routine funding for testing and screening in HIV-negative individuals. However, if a patient that is interested in PrEP or is on a PrEP regimen and does test positive for HIV, usually confirmatory testing will be done to establish the patient's HIV-positive status. So is PrEP actually affordable? If a patient were to pay for PrEP out-of-pocket, the Gilead list prices are $1,842 for Truvada and $1,930 for Descovy. Now, Truvada went generic in 2019. Therefore, there are generic versions available for as low as $30. Oh, wow. I imagine that cost may be a major barrier to starting PrEP, even if there is an interest. 
Fortunately, there are programs out there to help with that cost, Elise. Gilead, the company that created Truvada and Descovi, has programs to make PrEP more affordable for those who are underinsured or uninsured. I also heard about this program sponsored by the federal government itself called Ready, Set, Prep that can assist with PrEP costs. That's right. The Ready, Set, Prep program provides free PrEP HIV prevention medications for thousands of eligible individuals in the United States, and it's pretty easy to enroll. What about insurance coverage? This must be a bit tricky given that adolescents are likely still covered by their parents. The federal government has also mandated that most healthcare insurers cover the costs of Truvada and Descovi, as well as those services that are associated with its use, such as clinic visits and lab tests. However, for some of these programs, individuals under the age of 18 must have a guardian's signature. In some states, the signature does not have to be from a parent, but can be from a health care provider. Just make sure you know what the policies are in your area. So, Dr. Newman, where would our patient Troy go to get his PrEP prescription filled? Patrice, Troy can get his prescription filled at almost all pharmacies. Truvada and Descovi are in stock in most of the major pharmacies, and if they're not in stock, it takes only about 24 hours for the pharmacy to get them. Is there any data on how often PrEP prescriptions are filled? Unfortunately, the numbers are not great. Based on U.S. pharmacy data from 2012 to 2017, only about 1.5% of all PrEP prescriptions were for patients less than 18 years of age. PrEP is underutilized and represents an area of opportunity for pediatricians to get involved in HIV prevention. That's a really important point, Dr. Newman. Wow, we have covered a good bit of information today, but it's time to wrap up today's episode. Let's summarize some key points for the listeners. Elise, do you want to start us off? Sure. As our discussion has demonstrated, it is so important for providers to have a good understanding and application of PrEP, especially for those who take care of the adolescent population, which are at extremely high risk of contracting HIV and other STIs. That's right. Primary care providers have the ability to be the first people to counsel patients on safe sex and STD prevention. HIV screening should be done universally for those 15 years of age and older. Testing should be done routinely for patients who have high-risk behaviors. PrEP should absolutely be considered as a therapy to mitigate the risk of HIV exposure. In fact, the USPSTF has given an A rating for the recommendation of PrEP to high-risk adolescents and adults. Providers should know that the prescription of PrEP requires a negative HIV test result, and patients have the option to take it by mouth once daily or as an injection every two months. And finally, while all minors can consent to STI testing, providers should check with their state to see if HIV is included. They should also know any other laws regarding minor HIV prevention and treatment and if PrEP would be covered under those services. And since we are here in the Augusta area, we would like to also mention an important resource for our listeners here. The Ryan White Program at Augusta University provides HIV-related services and care for patients. The Equality Clinic of Augusta provides care for the surrounding under- and uninsured LGBTQ community. And finally, the Health Department's Project IMPACT provides HIV testing, treatment, and prevention in all counties in the CSRA. We encourage our listeners to reach out to your local health departments and PrEP providers for more information in your area. Thank you so much, Dr. Newman, for being here today as our wonderful expert. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed our discussion today. An additional thanks to Dr. Rebecca Yang and Dr. Ingrid Camello, who contributed and peer-reviewed today's discussion. 
Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. Free CME credit is also available for this episode. Please refer to our show notes and websites for the link. We look forward to speaking with you on the next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.